Hi, my name is Jeremy Leitnan. I'm the youth minister at Shoreland Lutheran High School, uh, and I'm here with Pastor Michael Zarling at uh, Water of Life Lutheran Church in Racine in Caledonia, Wisconsin. Uh, welcome to the Thirsty Podcast, Episode 10. Today we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3, and then the first three chapters of the Old Testament prophet Amos. 2 Thessalonians 2 is a really interesting one to get started with today because uh, it introduces us to this character that uh, Paul calls the man of lawlessness. And this is probably in the whole New Testament, one of the most comprehensive descriptions of the Antichrist uh, that you can find anywhere in the Bible. And yet the funny thing is, in this chapter, uh, it's one of the only places in the Bible that talks about the Antichrist, but does not use the name or term Antichrist for him. Uh, Pastor Zarling, did you have any uh, pattern that you wanted to follow for this? Sure. So what I'm going to do, Pastor Lightning, is I'm going to give our listeners the nine identifying marks of the man of sin or the Antichrist that Paul lays out. And then I want you, if you can, to, to kind of talk about who is or what is this Antichrist. So if you're listening along, then please, you might want to have your uh, Bible open to Second Thessalonians chapter 2 so you can kind of follow along with the verses. So the first mark of the man of sin is in verse 3. Paul says that before Christ's coming, there must be an apostasy or a falling away from the truth led by this man of sin. And then the second mark is in verse 4, that the man of sin opposes and exalts himself above everyone who is called God by declaring that he has superior authority to anyone in the temple of God, in the church. So that's a key one because this Antichrist sets himself up in the church and puts himself over Christ and his doctrines. The third mark is in verse 6, that something is preventing this man of sin from exercising his authority. A lot of Bible scholars think that's the Holy Spirit working through pastors and theologians. Verse 7 is the fourth mark of the man of sin. And Paul is saying that this man of sin is already at work in Paul's time. And that lends us to help us see that this is not just one man, but it's an institution throughout history. The fifth mark is in verse 8, that the man of sin succeeded in exercising the superiority that he claimed for himself. Uh, Jesus would use God's word, the breath of his mouth, to greatly reduce the power of this man of sin that he'd have over many people. Uh, an example of that would be the Reformation. But the Antichrist will continue to be active until Christ's return. The sixth mark is in verse 8. At the end of the world, Jesus will completely eliminate any power that the Antichrist had over people. Uh, and the seventh mark is Satan will use his power to enable his followers to do false miracles of any kind. So think of an institution inside the church that promotes miracles. The eighth mark is in verse 10, that Satan will use his power to deceive the Antichrist and his followers by accepting a form of self-righteousness. 
Uh, so these followers of the Antichrist will look for their own righteousness instead of relying on the righteousness of Christ. And then the ninth mark is that the followers of the Antichrist refuse to love the truth. And so God punishes the Antichrist and his followers by hardening them in the delusion that they're on the way to salvation, when in reality, they're perishing. So, Pastor Lightning, what or who is the man of sin? Who is the Antichrist? Well, you put that all together. Uh, once again, inside the church, uh, an institution that existed from uh, Paul's time until now, uh, there's a point at which this lawless one was revealed or will be revealed at the time Paul wrote this. Um, and uh, yeah, promoting miracles and, uh, well, I, I would say the uh, office of the papacy. There you go. And I say the office of the papacy uh, because it, it is conceivable that uh, individuals who fill that office could have faith and be saved, as, as unlikely as that is. Um, but the fact of the matter is, it's not so much one particular individual. It's not just one pope who was really bad or something like that. It is the ongoing succession of them. So an example of that is uh, this tweet that came from the Catholic Church. Pope Francis, it says, is due to hold an interreligious prayer service at the ancient Mesopotamian site of Ur when he visits Iraq next week. An event local archaeologists hope will draw renewed attention to the place revered as the birthplace of Abraham. The tweet continues, the interreligious prayer service will be attended by Christians, Muslims, Mandian Sabian Yazidi, and other religious minorities present in Iraq. The focus will be on harmony between religious groups in a service the Vatican has named Prayer for the Sons and Daughters of Abraham. So, Pastor Lightning, do you catch anything wrong with what's being said in that tweet? Uh, yeah, it doesn't sound like anybody that... It sounds like you don't necessarily have to believe that Jesus is true God in order to uh, be included in the one true uh, Christian religion. Yeah, and exactly that. What Pope Francis is doing there is uh, he's denying what Scripture says. I don't remember Peter telling the Pharisees that Abraham was the name under heaven by which people could be saved. Uh, also, Jesus said he could make children of Abraham out of the rocks. Uh, he hammered the children of Abraham because that's how they thought they would be saved, and that's what. Pope Francis is saying here is he's trying to get all these people together, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and so forth together under the banner of being the physical ancestors of Abraham when God told Abraham salvation came through his son, through Isaac, but most importantly through Christ. And as Paul laid out, the Antichrist leads people away from the true Christ. There are so many things that I would love to dive into when it comes to this. Uh, one of them is the whole idea of, uh, is it a point of doctrine that, that you must believe this about the uh, papacy, or can it just be a pleasant uh, difference of opinions between Christians that uh, this, isn't, this isn't the papacy? Um, 
Well, one thing that you have to remember is that uh, when God speaks, that's a prophecy. And uh, well, actually, I'm already going down the road of <laughs> uh, following that discussion point. I, I just wanted to throw a few more out there and see if you want to take any of them. Uh, one would be uh, one would be that. Another one would be um, talking about uh, the way modern Catholics, who are more conservatively minded, react and how they're sort of saying. Like I don't, I don't like the way that uh, Pope Francis is leading things, and uh, at the same time, it's kind of like Lutherans or uh, several Pro- many Protestants would say, "Yeah, why are you just now getting on board with this?" Right. I have a lot of relatives who are or were Roman Catholic. My mom, for example, was before she converted to becoming Wisconsin Synod Lutheran, and. If you talk to Roman Catholics today, most of them are going to say, well, I don't believe what the Catholic Church teaches. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, in that you know, when they believe everything the Catholic Church teaches, well, as we're laying out, they're following what is being led, leading them away from Christ. Their work righteousness, their penance, uh, saying they'll, they're Hail Marys and they're Our Fathers, uh, paying their indulgences still to this day, uh, buying masses. Uh, so all of those things lead people away from Christ, praying to Mary and the saints. I just talked to someone the other day. He said, well, that's just a matter of opinion. I said, no, that's praying to a false god. Uh, you either it's a nothing prayer or it is a prayer to a false god. But either way, it is taking glory away from God, and that's alone to whom we pray. It, uh, it yeah, the the um, <laughs> I I think the the important point to make is uh, that this is in the church this this character because it's really easy to hear lutheran pastors say the pope is the antichrist and i've heard a lot of people jump on jump on that or react to that and say oh so you're saying that all catholics are going to hell uh, absolutely not that is that is the furthest thing from the truth uh, and in fact that's part of the sign uh, that he is within the church that he is within a group of believers who are receiving the means of grace and have faith uh, but that's a great danger also because he could be misleading them. So another misleading one is another tweet I read, and I'm not on Twitter. I read these tweets in my other news feeds, that the Pope came out in a recent book he had written saying that uh, he's thinking that there might be another worldwide flood because of humanity's sins against the climate. And notice what he says there. That's, those are his words, sins against the climate, not sins against God, but also another worldwide flood is what he thinks might happen. But any nine-year-old in Sunday school will tell you, God is not going to send another worldwide flood. The promise of that is the rainbow. But this is another sad example of the papacy leading people away from God's word and Jesus. And just so it make sure that we're not sounding like we're hammering on Catholics and so forth. Uh, I've had uh, the blessing of having a lot of adult confirmands over the years, and probably about half of them have been Roman Catholic. And I always remind them that ex-Catholics make the best Lutherans. <laughs> and they laugh and they wonder why. And I said, well, because before you were trying to save yourself by what you were doing. 
But now you realize you're saved by what Christ has done for you. Now you're going to get active in your church and faith, not because you have to, but because you want to. Not because you think you're being saved by what you're doing, but you're saved because what Christ has done for you. One of the neat things in verse 8 is that uh, I sort of see that as a prediction that Paul made of the Reformation. Uh, I was thinking maybe what you were going to say about Catholics making the best Lutherans is because that's what, what Luther was. <laughs> he was a Catholic uh, who came to understand and was enlightened by the gospel. Uh, and, and then in verse 8, it says that the lawless one will be revealed. And that's really what happened at the Reformation, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. In that God used Luther as the breath from the mouth of the Lord to counteract and uh, everything that had been taught in that institution of the papacy for centuries. Should we go on to chapter 3? Sure. All right, so I picked up on verse 6. We instruct you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to avoid every brother who is walking idly and not in accordance with the teaching that you receive from us. Uh, And then he goes on in verses 10, 11, and 12. In fact, when we were with you, this was our command. If anyone does not work, he should not eat. Indeed, we hear that some among you are idle, not by busy working, but by be, being busybodies. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we command and urge these people to work quietly and eat their own bread. Uh, one thing I want to talk about with the work before talking about busybodies is uh, I really want to encourage you listeners to get your kids working. So, Pastor Lightning, are your three boys hard workers? When I'm around, they are. (laughs) (laughs) They are. And my four daughters, they are definitely hard workers. And uh, and I think of taking my catechism students to Wisconsin Lutheran College for a tour a year or so ago. And at, at the end of the tour, our tour guide, Adam, had the students together in the chapel. And he talked to them about how When they're at Wisconsin Lutheran College, they're going to have about 15 credits, so 15 hours of classroom study. And then he floored them when he said, you're going to have two hours of homework for every hour in the classroom. They were doing the math, and even they could figure out that's 30 hours or more. That's a full-time job. But then Adam reminded them that the students that only go to school are usually poorer students than the ones who are also involved in extracurriculars like sports and hobbies and clubs because they know how to budget their time. That One of my friends likes to say, if you want to get something done, you ask a busy person. And that's what Paul's saying here is keep busy. Not so busy that you don't have time to pray or worship or be in God's word, but we'll talk about it in a little bit. When you are busy, it keeps you from being a busy body. Could you squeeze in some time to take a leisurely dip in a hot tub? Yep, we might do that with some beer sometime soon. I I did, thought of something similar to what you were saying, and and there was really kind of a conundrum uh, when it came to uh, verse fourteen. Um, and if anyone does not obey. Uh, Our word in this letter, take note of him so that you do not associate with him uh, in order that he may be put to shame. Uh, 
And that kind of sounds very drastic, like you're cutting off all ties. But then the very next verse, yeah, do not consider him an enemy, but admonish him as a brother, means no, you're not cutting off all ties. And I think that's a good uh, way to think about relationships, that um, you, there might be tension sometimes. There might be uh, uh, difficulties in relationships that you have with people because you have to take a, a hard stance or you have to share unpleasant words. Um, and yet that doesn't mean that you dislike the person or you're separated or not friends with them anymore. Uh, it just means that you want to uh, gently correct them. Right. So, Pastor Lightning, think about, uh, I don't know if you've had this discussion with people. I've had it a number of times with families here. You know, how do you correct a loved one? You know, I think of one family that told me that their daughter, who was a grown daughter, and she had gotten an unscriptural divorce, and they were calling her to repentance. And the way they did that is they did not invite her to family functions, birthday parties, weddings, anniversaries. And that sounds really harsh. And yet, out of love, that was their way of trying to bring her back by calling her to repentance. Because otherwise, it can just seem, well, hey, that was wrong, but now, yeah, come and enjoy the party with us. And then they felt like by doing that, that they were condoning the sin. Have you had families talk to you about those kind of things before? No, I haven't, but I have heard anecdotes of, um, and and this gets even a little touchy. Well, it's, it's the same sin. It's a sixth commandment sin. Uh, it has to do with homosexuality. That if there are gay couples, that uh, and and this is becoming more and more common, uh, even among our uh, our our Wells network of, of families and loved ones, that uh, you might know of somebody that has. Uh, actively homosexual uh, son or daughter, and they have even a committed partner type of relationship. And then that becomes a very odd thing. How do we handle that? How do we deal with it? And uh, I've heard of cases where there will be one family, one of the two uh, gay partners, parents and family that is very loving and accepting and warm toward the uh, other uh, member of the partnership, and then uh, the uh, maybe more conservative side, they will just acknowledge that there is somebody else in that family, and I I don't I don't come to you with an answer on that. I'm not going to try to sort that all out, but uh, I I think there probably is in these verses some uh, comfort from the Holy Spirit for exactly how to proceed with that. Uh, that you don't cut somebody out of your life entirely, and yet you also let them know that their behavior is not God-pleasing. Yeah, and when you're talking about those sexual sins, I read a statistic the other day that one out of ten of our young people are coming out as being gay or lesbian or bisexual. So it's something that's really being uh, encouraged in our elementary schools and high schools of the you know the national federal public schools it's in our uh in our culture and TVs and movies and music and so forth and so when i talk to our young people my catechism students my high schoolers and i ask them you know as we study the sixth commandment on sexual sins you know should you have friends who are gay well they think that the right answer is no well we talk about this here verse 14 <laughs> Uh, and if anyone does not obey your word in this letter, take note of him, do not associate him. So they think, well, 
we should cut off all ties. And I said, no, you need to be friends with them. If it's your brother, it's your best friend, whatever, you need to be friends because otherwise, how will you ever call him or her to repentance? And that's the key. Whether it is saying you can't come to this party, whether it is coming to the party, however families deal with it, uh, whether it's I want to be your friend or I don't want to be your friend. The idea is never about superiority. It's always about how can I best call my friend, my brother or sister, my son or daughter to repentance. The chapter uh, wraps up with Paul's signature. Um, He says, uh, this greeting is written by me, Paul, with my own hand. This is a distinguishing sign of how I write in every letter. Um, and and you have yeah, you do find that in other letters we just finished in one of my classes the book of Galatians, and he says look look with what large letters I write. Um, he's he's letting everybody know that uh, this is genuine. This is actual history. This is a, a true message that he is, is sending. Right. Yeah. Because I have very bad eyes. I'd be signing in very large letters, or I've got my. Uh, my notepad here where I write my sermons on because I still handwrite my sermons and then I type them in and there's all kinds of squiggle marks. Pastor Lightning, you might be hard-pressed to read that. It's kind of like a shorthand that's not really shorthand. It's just really sloppy. <laughs> you should have been a doctor, right? Yes. Well, and that's what one of my uh, friends here at church, she said, I said, uh, I bet you can't read this. I used to work in the hospital. That's nothing. <laughs> all right, so let's talk about Amos. So an introduction to Amos, Amos of Tekoa was a layman and a part-time short-term prophet. So by profession, he is a farmer and a rancher, and then God calls him into the ministry. Uh, He's probably a contemporary of the prophet Hosea, and like Hosea, he is delivering final warnings to the northern kingdom of Israel. So he's going to talk about Judah a little bit in chapter 2, but this message is mainly about Hosea. So Amos is preaching to a hardened people. We need to remember that. And so his message is mostly law. There's very little gospel in the chapters of Amos. Uh, and what he's talking about is that the economic conditions in this northern kingdom of Israel are very good but the nation of Israel was spiritually bankrupt, that they had fallen headlong into the excesses of Baal worship, sponsored by Ahab and Jezebel, and then the people continued in the sin of Jeroboam, which means that they worshiped the Lord in the form of a golden calf. So this heterodox religion, combining the truth with falsehood, began under Jeroboam, the first, the first king of Israel, but it continued throughout the history of the northern kingdom. The people's sins were that they did not show love to their neighbor. That's the second table of the law. But they were only reflecting that they had already forsaken their love for the Lord of the first table of the law. And so God is going to bring judgment on his people. The thing that will probably stand out in some of these chapters is how the visual graphic he gets. He gets very graphic uh, and and visual in in kind of a, a stomach turning way. Even uh, I was wondering if uh, I don't know how much research you did. I have a thought, 
But I don't know if you did a lot of research into one of the things I noticed as a pattern uh, with the way that Amos speaks, and it is how uh, he does sort of the uh, escalating number pattern, where he says there's for for three sins of uh, Damascus. Damascus for three sins of Damascus, uh, no wait for four, yeah. or for three sins of Damascus, even for four, uh, depending on what translation you use. Um, the, I don't know if you looked into that at all, but it's going to come up a lot. It does come up a lot. What I had learned about it is it's an expression that's used in Psalms and Proverbs. What he's kind of talking about is just piling up one sin upon another, leading to destruction. What did you find? Well, it wasn't much of what I found. It was more like, as I read this, what strikes me about it. And um, I I think that makes sense, what you said about uh, the piling up of sins. Oh, here's another sin, here's another sin, and and another. Um, I, I suppose you could find a little sort of silver lining of gospel over that storm cloud of law, uh, when you think of the patience of God, uh, as the sins are piling up, he is not, I'm not condemning you yet, I'm not, I'm not destroying you yet, Uh, but really that's more like uh, what Paul talked about in Romans uh, 1 and 2, where he, I think maybe a translation of that word in the New Testament is forbearance. That that God he will he will put up with something until you can hear the gospel, but uh, he's not going to put up with it forever. Yeah, and so what he does here is he goes through and he uh, hammers on the enemies of God, the heathen people, the pagan people that are all around Judah and Israel, of Damascus and uh, which is. Gilead, a territory east of the Jordan, and Gaza, which is Philistia, which is southwest of Israel. There's Edom. Edom uh, to the uh, uh, south and east. Right. And Tyre, uh, that's northwest. Uh, Ammon, which is to the north. And then Moab. I'm not sure where Moab is. Oh, directly uh, east. Okay. Directly east. Yeah, so he hammers on each of these enemies of God that he's going to oppress them. And that's the comfort I think we can take as Christians from this and that Satan is going to ally himself with all kinds of enemies and they are going to try to oppress us in the Christian church. But we take comfort from this chapter that the Lord is going to thunder from Zion. He's going to judge those who rob God's people of the blessings that he's given them. I was sort of thinking, uh, not not the opposite, but uh, I sort of had a picture as you were describing these countries that isn't this kind of like a whirlwind or a tornado, a hurricane uh, all around uh, God destroying the enemies on all sides of Israel and and then you mentioned roaring. The Lord roars, which is something that a storm does. And and but then it it's like by the time we get to chapter three, uh, it's going to be talking about people of Israel, that um, uh, his his own people. Uh, he has he has a bone to pick with them too. Right. So you know, you're listening to this. You didn't see Pastor Lightning. Uh, making a big circle with his <laughs> finger. But that that reminds me, because Pastor Lighton and his family are coming over to I like house. to talk with my hands. Yeah. He and his family are coming over to dinner for our, at our house later on, and uh, I have a brand new dartboard that's waiting for me to hook up that my daughter Belle and I have been, been practicing. She's been getting better. I've been getting worse. 
But it's, I taught her how to play cricket. So you're trying to get 15s through 20s, and then you get to the bullseyes. And that's kind of what this is here. You're going around and getting all the other numbers, all the nations around Judah and Israel, and then we get to the middle of chapter 2, and he hones in on the bullseye, especially of Israel. So here I wanted to talk about, Pastor Lightning, I don't know how much you know about the Equality Act. A lot of Christians are talking about it. I talked about it with my 7th graders in catechism class yesterday, and it was interesting as I talked about it, could see their jaws drop, which was pretty hard to see with their masks on their face, but you could still see that their eyes got big and their their mouths were open as we talked about what this Equality Act will do. Just a couple of things that it's going to force schools, churches, hospitals to accept government's beliefs and mandates about sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, We talked about how it's going to legislate that Boys who identify as girls are going to be allowed to be in girl sports and are going to be into girls' bathrooms and locker rooms. And girls had some pretty strong things to say about that yesterday. Uh, it can strip Christians and religious ministries of the right to hire people of shared faith. So that means churches, schools, adoption agencies, uh, that it's going to strip health professionals of their rights of conscience. So I use the example with the seventh graders that if they wanted to become a doctor, uh, they would be forced under this Equality Act to perform an abortion. If they became a physician, they would be forced against their conscience to perform a surgery that mutilated a boy's body to become a girl or a girl's body to become a boy. If they were a pharmacist, they would be forced to go against their conscience to give drugs that would become uh, hormone blockers. And it will deny or threaten accreditation to religious colleges and universities that do not accept this, like Martin Luther College and Wisconsin Lutheran College. And so my encouragement as we talk about this is, well, what do we do? Because this is definitely an enemy to us as Christians. Well, my encouragement would be to pray about it, tell your friends about them, about it. Get involved in opposing it. Uh, email, call your congressperson uh, and your senator. And then pray to God that he's going to thunder from Mount Zion to put an end to this abhorrent legislation and everything that goes along with it. And understand God's in control. But this is my prayer that he brings down his judgment on this legislation before it's passed and enacted Uh, and overtakes and transforms the Christian landscape of our nation, uh, because otherwise God's judgment might might be felt in all of us. The uh, second chapter of Amos um, really follows up on that theme of uh, God's judgment. And I I think in verse 2, when it talks about the blast of a ram's horn, that maybe today a good uh, parallel to that would be like a tornado siren or some kind of an air raid siren, uh, that you hear that and you feel a little bit nervous. It's a, and you think, oh, it's a good, it's a Saturday. It's, you know, it's noon on Saturday. It's, there's nothing wrong. But other than that, what does that do? That you, you get your adrenaline pumping and thinking, oh, something is wrong. And as I was listening to you describe uh, the Equality Act and everything that could come along with it, um, 
I, I really think uh, we would do well to listen to Amos here and think about an air raid siren going off. Um, the, the one other thing I wanted to say in uh, chapter 2 had to do with um, uh, verses uh, 11 and 12. Um, it talks there about Nazarites. And uh, today, I guess I would think of uh, people who you really admire. They're really uh, fine uh, examples or, or nice people. They're just always friendly and always giving of themselves. And sometimes, don't they really annoy you? <laughs> because you think you want you think I now, now knock it off. Like you're making all the rest of us look bad. But uh, and Pastor Zarling, I, I think this is kind of related to uh, the theme of your Sunday Lenten sermons a little bit too. Reasons to hate Jesus. Um, that uh, when when people are holy and make us feel guilty for not being as holy, um, we don't like that. And that's really kind of the point of um, verses 11 and 12 here. Nazarites were a a special uh, oath that you could take in ancient Israel in order to uh, practice a, a, a higher level of discipline if you wanted to. And it was usually only for a a limited period of time. Samson was kind of rare. He was his whole life long. But other than that, uh, it was just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some time to practice some extra difficult self-discipline. And uh, you can see Amos is here scolding the people who are trying to distract the Nazarites, whatever it is from, you know, from their diet or from uh, their, their exercise or good sleep patterns or whatever it might be. Um, he said, you made the Nazarites drink wine uh, and told the prophets, you must not prophesy. Uh, we, we don't like it when people make us look bad by their uh, excellent behavior. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned before is how Amos is very descriptive of things that are happening. And one of the things that he mentions going back to chapter 1 of with his judgment against Edom, or, uh, the judgment against Ammon in verse 13, uh, he said that they ripped open their pregnant women of Gilead. And, and that just makes me think, as I was talking about with our nation, and one of the things I've mentioned before in these podcasts, and uh, it is something that is abhorrent as a nation, is we rip open our pregnant women with, and just call it abortion and call it uh, a, a right. But those are what the heathen nations did. And then, as I said before, what God is doing is he zeroes in on Israel. Well, what were they doing? Uh, I suppose, if I can just follow up on your comment on abortion there, I suppose the easy thing immediately is to think of, yeah, that definitely is uh, doing violence to the baby. But uh, actually, when you look into it, there is a lot of violence that is done to the the woman who survives the abortion, that that's not that's not healthy. That's not good for her body. Uh, to to the different manners that they use for for performing abortions. Well, you said that my daughter Lydia, who's a senior at Shoreland Lutheran High School, where Pastor Lighton and teaches, she said that she finished watching the movie Unplanned in the classroom, and she was just crying the whole time. And my daughter Miriam, who's a junior at college, she said they watched that. The other day, with one of her, uh, with her Bible study group, and she has a roommate that came to it who's not Wisconsin Saint Lutheran, and uh, the roommate said that she changed her 
her mind on abortion after watching that movie as we really reach out to them and show what abortion is and what it does to, like you said, women and children. And then what does Amos say that Israel was doing? Uh, He's just laying out a list. So he's got a real short summary for each of the heathen nations, but now Israel is the worst of them because they were God's chosen people and they rejected that choice. Uh, He says that they sold the poor among them as slaves to gain wealth for themselves. They oppressed the poor in other ways, denied them justice. Uh, They committed horrible sexual acts. Uh, He says, and this is one of the things Pastor Lightner mentioned, that a man and his son shared the same woman. Uh, They took someone's garment, leaving him without clothing. They worshipped false gods, prostrating themselves before every altar. They levied fines and then used them to worship false gods. You mentioned the Nazarites, making them break their vows. So God had his judgment for the heathen people, but he's reserving the strongest judgment for his own chosen people. And Amos is very, you know, he's using some very descriptive language. He says they're not going to be able to escape. He says the swift runner cannot outrun God's justice. The strong man won't be able to be strong enough to withstand God's justice. The archer and the horseman cannot save their own lives when, the, when God's justice comes. And the most courageous among the warriors will be naked on the day of judgment. So, so that is what he's talking about with, with Israel of what, what kind of judgment he is reserving when his people reject God. I, I didn't remember saying that about the, the man and his father going to the same woman, but I certainly wouldn't want to uh, disagree with it because it's in God's word. Um, it, it, the vivid imagery that you see there uh, it has to do with the way that they would worship in verse 8. Uh, they, they would commit sexual acts in worship. And uh, you can just see, especially how detestable it is that the clo- they would, it seems to be describing setting out pieces of clothing. Here I am talking with my hands again. Uh, <laughs> setting out pieces of clothing uh, for, for committing these sexual acts next to these pagan altars. And then, and then just the really sad thing is that that was a piece of clothing seized as collateral. In other words, that was probably the, the, you know, the, the coat of some uh, righteous woman or some believing man that is now uh, being used by these uh, hypocritical uh, worshipers of, of pagans in, the, in their uh, sexual sin. And just to wrap up this chapter is, you know, thinking about God's patience, that God is patient and we're gracious for it. As Peter says, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But when God's word, his will is persistently denied, then he may bring judgment on us. And can some of what we're experiencing as individuals, can some of what we are experiencing as a nation be God's warning calling us to repentance before things get worse. And he pours out the full portion of God's judgment on us. So we learn from this chapter to never abuse God's patience. He's given us the time to recognize our guilt, 
that he has sent us modern-day Amoses as pastors, as prophets, to warn us of God's eternal judgment. And listen to your Amos in your church. And as he calls you to repentance and he points you to Christ so that the remaining time you have here on earth is a time of grace rather than a time of judgment. Chapter 3 has a pretty lengthy list of questions that uh, the Lord asks through the prophet Amos. And uh, as I was trying to sort out all those questions and, and see, you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste his breath. Uh, so why is he asking these same questions over and over that, that sort of kind of start to sound a little bit repetitive? Um, does a lion roar in the forest if it does not have prey? Uh, if a ram's horn is sounded in the city, the people become alarmed, don't they? Uh, take any of those questions that you want. And uh, I think the point is, God is not erupting with anger at everyone because he just randomly decided to. He's not a God who just uh, vindictively says, or you know, arbitrarily, that's the word I was looking for, arbitrarily says, uh, I'm going to punish people because I like punishing people. No, there's, uh, these are coming as consequences. Uh, God's default uh, mindset toward us is one of grace and, and compassion. Right. That's what I was going to say about those verses, too, is that there's a cause and effect, hmm. that there's something that's visible, like a lion or a bird or a ram's horn that's followed by something invisible. So I know if you're listening, you're probably like watching videos of cats and dogs. I watched a video the other day of an impala, that this young impala uh, that didn't have horns yet, so it was pretty young. It was trapped in a water hole that a crocodile had its rear left leg. And it struggled for like two or three minutes, but it finally got away. And the people that are uh, videoing it are kind of cheering quietly. And then the Impala is taking a breath as it's walking away and not really paying attention because it's getting its breath. And then a leopard jumps out of the bushes and grabs it by the neck, crushing its neck and killing it. <laughs> and uh, you know the way I... I apply that to this is there was a cause and effect. The Impala had lost its focus. It was doomed. Just like God's people here that Amos is talking about had lost their focus. That even though we can't always understand God's plan, we need to recognize there's often a cause and effect in place. That when we break God's covenant with our refusal to worship him and live a Christian life, then there's the effect of living apart from God's will and living according to our sinful nature. So the visible effect is our sin. The invisible effect may be God's judgment upon that sin. So it, it just hit me now as, I, as we've been talking that I wonder if anybody listening to us might think that we sound a little bit like Job's friends. If you're, if you're surrounded by, if you're Job or some, you know, suffering in some way, and then, uh, you you hear these two guys come along on this podcast and say, uh, "Well, there's a cause and effect." Um, I, I don't know if you. What what would you say to them? I would say that God is roaring. That's what he's talking about here in this chapter. God's warring, roaring. He's warning us. And mm -hmm. when you hear that roar, you know the lion is close. Uh, you better pay attention. And and I think that 
we've become as Christians lackadaisical because we don't often see sin. The way I mm. and, and see the effects of sin, I, I illustrated it the other day in a sermon saying, you know, if uh, if you started driving and you went 10 miles over the speed limit, and all of a sudden every time you went 10 miles over, you got a flat tire, there was a cause and effect, boom, you would you'd watch your speed limit. Or if every time you spoke something that was harmful to someone else, you got a big red zit on the top of your forehead, you'd watch what you were doing. But because God doesn't usually act that way and bring judgment right away, we become lackadaisical in our sin. We don't hear the roar. We let other things you know, become cover over our ears. We think he must be okay with it if he's not punishing it right, right away. I, and I think that, that if anybody was listening that uh, had... On, had in mind what I was talking about, that you're feeling like Job and, and maybe somebody's telling you, oh, you must have done something wrong and that's why uh, you're being punished now. Uh, I think it's also possible that, uh, well, it, it's very likely, in fact, that a lot of the bad things that happen are just because we live in a sinful world um, and, and they're general fallout from sin. But uh, I don't want that in any way to downplay your point that if God is roaring, maybe you should also pay attention too. Yeah, because every roar is a call to repentance. And that's what we're trying to do. Not saying that every sickness, uh, that every car accident, every time your furnace goes out, well, you must have done a specific yeah, sin. Yeah. No, it's like Pastor Lightning said, no, we're living in a sinful world. But there's a cause of living, well, because the cause is living in a sinful world and us being sinners, the effect is things are going to break down. Our body's going to break down. We're going to uh, have diseases and death. Uh, Not every sin is followed up specifically with judgment. But every time these things happen, it's a reminder that we're sinners and God is calling us to repentance. He is going to accept us back. We need to listen to the roar uh, because it's a love of it's a roar of love, so that He wants us to listen and return. Yeah, that, there was a fellow pastor uh, that I would meet with down in Kansas who uh, made a great point that um, most of these Old Testament prophets of God. Uh, spend a lot of time hammering the law and calling people to repentance. And and you could say, on the one hand, um, wow, that's kind of scary and intimidating, and God must really be in a bad mood a lot. But he said, you know, there's another way to look at it, and that is God is still talking. He's, he's still having a conversation with us. And uh, even when he gets graphic, and I'll just close with this uh, thought from uh, the end of chapter 3, that... Um, Amos does get very graphic here, but at least God is talking. That's my that's my first point. My second point is, uh, verse 12 says, This is what the Lord says, Just as a shepherd rescues two legs or a tip of an ear from the mouth of a lion, uh, so the Israelites who live in Samaria will be rescued with only a corner of a bed or a piece of cloth from a couch. Um, so you got that very graphic imagery again of uh, the shepherd managed to kill the lion, but the lion already ate most of the sheep and he just is pulling out little bits of the sheep from the lion's mouth. And God says, that is what is going to happen to you if you don't repent. So anything else you want to bring up with Amos chapters one to three? Yeah, just those closing verses, the third chapter, boy, do you think of the luxury that we live in in America today? Yeah. 
and and what's he talking about? I'm going to strike your winter house and your summer house. You're you're gonna, you, yeah. That this is very timely. Yeah, exactly. In that thinking that when we have all of this wealth in our nation, we may think we're pretty poor, but no, every one of us is wealthier than the than the, the most of the wealthiest people in the history of the world. And uh, how you and I may not have a summer house, but you know we like to go on vacation and go somewhere warm, especially you know if we're living here in Wisconsin and uh, and trying to go someplace warm. But we still have that luxury. God is calling us to repentance before He takes things away. Yeah, if we're just getting ready to you know make plans for what are the, what are there the vacation rental by owner. Uh, it may not be your house that you own. But there's a whole lot of us that are uh, going to places that other people own, but we still pay good money to stay there. And uh, the, these words of God are for us still today. Yeah, so the last thing I want to bring up is I talked about that roaring. And Pastor Lightnin said, too, that God is still talking. And so even though it's scary hearing God roar through his call to repentance and we see sin and possibly judgment around us, that the Lord will always roar against his people's sins. But he promises never to leave them unaware of what he's doing. He's always going to send his prophets. So next week, we're going to spend more time with the shepherd prophet Amos. So this is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Lightning McQueen. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>